aware of our own shortcomings here at First Baptist, nevertheless, they and we seek to follow the Bible daily, and we find that even though it can be difficult, it is not at all impossible. When the Bible is understood and obeyed wholeheartedly, we all can attest to the fact that it leads to a joyful, fulfilling pattern of life that knows frequent blessing from God. That being the case, would we not want to seek to understand the Bible and what it says about politics, and would we not want to follow it and also enjoy that same pattern of frequent blessing for the rest of our countrymen that we experience for ourselves when we follow the Lord? I dare say we should. We ought to. And so this morning, there are four questions. And I, I have to confess at the outset, this is a different sermon than I usually preach. You know my pattern. You know my approach. I go, I pick a verse. We go exegetically. I try to expose the meaning of the verse. I try to draw the meaning out. We talk about it exhaustively. An hour goes by. We've looked at two or three verses, okay? Now, today is a different sermon, one that I don't do often, that I almost never do, to be perfectly frank. It is what you would call a topical sermon, which from the school of thought that I come from is almost anathema. Like, we don't do topical sermons. We want to focus on the Word and what the Word says. But today, we're covering a broad topic, and as such, we're covering like a thousand Scripture verses, which is so difficult for me and even more difficult for you. But here's the thing. Don't flip in your Bible. You'll never hear me say this ever again. Okay? You know I love the Word, and you need to be flipping in the Word. I always try to draw your attention to the Scripture, but we don't have time for everybody to flip this morning. So trying to be cognizant of that, I've got all the scripture verses up on the screen that I'll be referencing. There's quite a number of them. I have sort of coached my assistant, the lovely and talented Lydia McAndrew, to know when I'm about to hit a certain verse so she can throw it up on the screen so you can see it. And this is the one time you'll hear me say this, don't flip, just listen. And if you're like, well, I really wanted to know what that verse was that you mentioned in the sermon this morning, on the back panel of your bulletin, you will find most of those scripture verses listed. So you can find the general outline for today's message along with those scripture verses on the back panel of your bulletin if there's any question. You can look them up uh, when you get home. But today's message, we're going to be covering four questions, four questions which we need good answers to if we're going to vote in a way tomorrow that will honor the Lord. Question number one, how should Christians understand their responsibility to government in voting? Number two, should Christians, and this is a significant question that we should ask ourselves, should Christians vote only for Christians? Should we restrict our vote to only electing individuals who self-identify as Christian to higher office? Number three, how do we prioritize the political issues biblically? And then number four, to borrow a book title from Chuck Colson, Now How Shall We Vote? This is the ultimate question that we're going to be aiming at later in the morning. The reason why we should give some thought and some attention to this is because the prophet Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29 specifically, says, God speaking to the nation of Israel as they are living in exile, he says to them, through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find 
your welfare. Now, right off the bat, what we need to understand is that our good, our well-being is not found only in our own individual existence. We cannot, as Christians, turn a blind eye to the world around us because God won't let us. Christianity and following Jesus Christ is a life that is committed to love. And as God says through the prophet Jeremiah, we find our happiness, we find our welfare, not only in our own walk with the Lord, but also in the well-being of the world around us, which means that politics absolutely comes into play because politics has to do with the good of the world around us. To ignore politics then is to ignore the opportunity that we have to seek the welfare of the city, of the province, and of the nation. And if we look at scriptures, we will find there are multiple examples of individuals in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament who took their faith in God and applied it to their political involvement. Yes, you find politics in the Bible. You're sitting there, you're asking yourself the question, I've read the Bible, I don't remember this showing up anywhere. As a matter of fact, you do find it in multiple places. I'm going to draw your attention to three specific examples. The first is Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Again, don't flip, just listen, the prophet Daniel, who is living in in exile, who's been dragged out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, specifically by this fellow named King Nebuchadnezzar, he is elected, if you will, to higher office by the king. He is chosen to be one of the king's counselors and one of the advisors. And in Daniel chapter 4, the prophet Daniel goes to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King Daniel's advice, sorry, the prophet Daniel's advice to King Nebuchadnezzar is, hey, you want to lengthen your prosperity in this pagan country? You want to extend your rule, you a pagan king, over all these people? Then stop sinning. What a powerful statement. Show mercy to the oppressed and stop you're sinning. The word he uses, the, the literal phrase, he says, break off your sins. It's, it's a way of calling him to repentance. Now, if you were to consider the political rhetoric, rhetoric that we hear oftentimes amongst all the different politicians today, you would find that if Daniel were to imitate the example of many of our modern-day politicians, what Daniel might have said if he were running for office today in the 21st century would be something along the lines of this. O King Nebuchadnezzar, I am a Jewish prophet, but I would never presume to impose my Jewish moral standards on your Babylonian kingdom. Ask your own astronomers and fortune tellers and soothsayers what they think, and they will guide you in your own traditions. And then follow your own heart. Be true to you. O King Nebuchadnezzar, you do you. It would not be my place to speak to you about right and wrong from my own tradition. You say, Pastor, oh yes, just listen to the many politicians who claim a faith of some kind, but as soon as they acknowledge that faith, quickly then throw that faith under the bus in order to pronounce something that is more secular and more appealing to the masses. Is that the example that we have from the prophet Daniel? No. He says to King Nebuchadnezzar, King, 
break off your sins. Now, the text doesn't say it in Daniel chapter 4, but you have to assume that the conversation continued, that there were words spoken which are not recorded for us in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar almost certainly said to Daniel, okay, what sins? What are you talking about? And Daniel almost certainly sat down with him and said, let's look at specific policies that you're instituting. Let's look at specific practices that you're implementing, and let's consider whether these things are godly. You can believe that Daniel almost guaranteed had that conversation, though it's not recorded for us in the scriptures. But we also find this not only in the book of Daniel, we also find examples of this in the New Testament, and specifically an individual by the name of John the Baptist. In the New Testament, there is, uh, there is this individual named John the Baptist. He's the last great prophet before Jesus comes. And during his lifetime, the ruler of Galilee was an individual by the name of Herod Antipas. He's known as a tetrarch. And he has been appointed ruler over that particular province by the Roman emperor. And as the, Roman, as the representative of the Roman Empire, all of the people in that particular part of the world, including John the Baptist, were subject to his rule, to Herod's rule. And Herod, the other interesting thing to note is that Herod was not from Israel. He was an Idumean. Uh, he was from the country of Edom. And so his reign was resented by the Jews, deeply resented. Matthew's gospel tells us that John the Baptist had been rebuking Herod the Tetrarch for a specific personal sin in his life. In Matthew chapter 14, it says, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, which was not his wife. The scripture tells us it was his brother Philip's wife because John, this is John the Baptist again, had been saying to him, uh, it is not lawful for you to have her. And then Luke's gospel adds just a little bit more detail to, to this. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 18. It says, John the Baptist, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, certainly the expression, all the evil things that Herod had done, included many evil actions that he had carried out as a governing official in the Roman Empire. And it was not limited exclusively to the fact that he was trying to connect with his brother's wife, trying to hook up with her. John the Baptist rebuked him for all of his crimes. And he boldly spoke to the officials of the empire about the moral right and wrong of their governmental policies. And in doing this, John was following in the steps of Daniel and many, many Old Testament prophets. You say, what Old Testament prophets are you talking about? Well, we have the Council of Jeremiah, which he proclaimed to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, which I already mentioned to you, in which he said, seek the welfare of the city. But there are also many others. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was the highest official after Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he had great influence in the decisions of Pharaoh. Moses also boldly stood before Pharaoh much later on and demanded freedom for the people of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, let my people go. The, for one of the first individuals to ask for freedom of religion, Moses. You also have Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. From Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it tells us that this was a position of high responsibility before King Artaxerxes of Persia. And he used that position of influence in order to secure a return to Jerusalem for his people. We also have Mordecai, who was described in the book of Esther as second in rank only to King Ahasuerus. I always have difficulty pronouncing that one. 
And of course, if you're familiar with the story of Esther and Mordecai, they also used their influence to significantly sway the decisions of the king. So we have multiple, multiple examples in the Old Testament. And we also have the example of John the Baptist in the New Testament. But also we have the example of the Apostle Paul, an individual who comes to faith in Christ. The argument can be made, okay, well, that's all Old Testament. And Israel had a theocracy and was understood to be run by the government of God. But we're in the New Testament now. We're in the New Covenant era, Pastor Josh. And is there an example of a New Testament believer seeking to influence government? And I answer, yes, indeed, there is. The Apostle Paul. From Acts chapter 24, we read this. The Apostle Paul, he is imprisoned, and he is being held, again, by a Roman governor, of the name of Felix. It says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, Paul reasoned, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, Go away for the present. When I get the opportunity, I will summon you. While Luke, in this particular passage in the book of Acts, does not give us any more details, the fact that Felix was alarmed and that Paul was reasoning with him about righteousness and the coming judgment indicates to us that Paul was talking about moral standards of right and wrong and the ways in which Felix, as an official of the Roman Empire, had obligations to live up to the standards that were given by God. Notice that. Paul no doubt told Felix that he would be accountable for his actions at the coming judgment, and this was what led Felix to, quote, be alarmed. When Luke tells us that Paul reasoned with Felix about these things, the Greek word, a dialegomai, indicates a back-and-forth conversation or discussion. It wasn't simply a one-time statement, here's the deal, Felix. This was an ongoing dialogue that they had. I mean, it, it, it doesn't defy the imagination, though, though Luke doesn't record it for us in the scripture. It does not defy the imagination that as soon as Paul begins reasoning with Felix, Felix would have said, well, what about this policy? Or what about this law? Or how do I enforce this rule and, and still be righteous according to Christ? And of course, Paul is reasoning with him. And if you don't measure up, guess what? Paul says there is a coming judgment. This is faith, this is religion, this is Christ coming to bear on politics. And it is Christians, it is Paul, who are bringing that pressure to bear. Therefore, if we as Christians are going to be faithful to the Lord, we have to be willing to bring significant Christian influence to bear on civil government and government leaders. Listen to me carefully, church. It is our responsibility before the Lord. We have many positive examples in the narrative history as well as in the didactic material, the teaching material of the scripture, including Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Esther. We have all of these examples, the written prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And in the New Testament, we have the courageous examples of John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. We have letters in the New Testament that speak to our conduct as citizens within this world, but citizens of a Another world, And if you take all of this together, this is not a small thread running from Genesis to Revelation. This is a major part of what it means 
to follow Jesus Christ. It is absolutely significant. But I want to give you a caution this morning. I want to give you a very important caution. Though we as Christians are called to the extent that we can to influence government towards righteousness and justice according to God's moral standards, we are never permitted by our king to use force. We are never permitted by Jesus to use any form of force or coercion in order to achieve those ends. Such a thing would be an abomination in the Lord's eyes. In John chapter 18, Jesus, before Pilate, about to be crucified. Pilate and him are having this discussion. Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus replies, my kingdom, John chapter 18, Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom isn't from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. and For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I can argue with you all day long about the truth of Christ, about the legitimacy of Christianity and the moral standards, the blessings that flow out of a nation that consciously chooses to walk according to biblical principles. I can show you empirical data in terms of countries that have sought to honor the word of God as a nation and the blessings that flowed out from it. But at the end of the day, the only thing that counts before the Lord, the only thing that matters is that you would place your faith in him, that you would surrender to him. And though I can argue with you all day long about the truth of Christianity and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, try as hard as I might, I can never believe for you. You and you alone have to choose faith to trust in Christ. And Jesus makes it very clear. His kingdom in this world consists of the proclamation of truth and the spiritual call that all those who are going to join his kingdom will listen to his voice. He makes it very clear his kingdom is of another world and not of this world. And if it were of this world, then his servants would be fighting. That is, using force, using coercion. But because it is not of this world, his servants are not doing that, which means that you and I are not permitted to do that. We absolutely must advocate for morality and righteousness. We must absolutely uphold the name of Jesus Christ. But we are never, never permitted by our king to use force or coercion. So I offer that caution because... If you take a look back during the medieval ages, you'll know that that wasn't always the case. That force and coercion and torture, in fact, were used. Such things are an affront to the Lord. But this brings us to the next question. That being the case, should Christians vote only for Christians? I draw your attention to the political party known as the Christian Heritage Party, CHT, 
And as we consider the CHT, I think it's important for us to look at it as a political party and not necessarily as a religious movement. Now, if you've read any of the documents on the CHT website, you could be forgiven if you were a little bit confused. They're extremely uh, religious-sounding. They have a, a statement of faith, and they have detailed statements in terms of how they're going to relate within the group to other different religions who choose to become a part of this party. And as you read through these documents, you can't help but get the distinct impression that there are going to be political leaders of the Christian heritage tradition who are going to be advocating on behalf of Christ. And so as we're sitting here looking at that, we would be tempted to say, oh, that that would be a good thing. And don't misunderstand me. I think it's always a good thing when any politician stands up and advocates the truth of Jesus Christ. But the question that I want to present to us this morning is, is it wise for us to have a political party that is explicitly Christian? And so what would be unwise about that? Well, there are two dangers. First off, if you look at all of the candidates, not only the ones running here in BC, but if you look at all of the candidates all across Canada that are associated with Christian Heritage Party, you cannot escape the fact that at least some of these candidates are not Christian. They support the Christian heritage. They are in favor of the founding of our country as a Christian founding, yet they themselves are not explicitly Christian. And they've been clear about that, some of these different uh, political individuals. And so the first danger I see right off the bat is that if we as Christians vote for a Christian heritage party that makes it so explicit from their political party's platform that they're a Christian organization, and then as a part of that Christian organization, we have non-Christians who are running for this party simply because they believe in the Christian heritage of this nation, do we not then compromise our testimony in terms of what a Christian ought to look like? I mean, we're confusing two things here, political governance and the stewardship of a history and a tradition with genuine born-again saved believers. If we support the Christian Heritage Party as churches and as individual Christians, we could be found to be in danger of supporting individuals who are claiming the name of Christ who are not themselves actually Christians. And this leads me to danger number two reinforcing a false understanding of genuine Christianity. There is nothing that holds a candle to the gospel. And as Christians who are called to be politically engaged, we cannot confuse anything, anything, even politics, as a remedy for the salvation and the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. I think it would be extremely easy if the Christian Heritage Party were to gain significant power, to confuse political activity and political involvement with salvation. You say, I don't know that that would ever happen. I think it might. I think it might. It's definitely a possibility. Anytime you'd have a leader's race for a party that is seeking to be faithful to the word of God, and those two leaders, those two different candidates for the office of leader are seeking to become the leader of the party, would it not be extremely easy for them as leaders of Christians who are supporting a Christian political party to start attacking each other regarding their theological beliefs 
and to suggest that I am a more pure leader for this party to have than this other individual, my opponent, because I believe and I subscribe to this other theology that he does not subscribe to. And the danger I see in that is then we start to split hairs, perhaps, or maybe these are large issues that are not small, but at any rate, we start to argue about belief and faith and the scriptures in front of a watching world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, believer goes to court against, or yeah, believer goes to court against believer, brother against brother, and this before unbelievers. He says, why not suffer wrong? And the, the implication there is that we should not be presenting the gospel uh, as something to be held up for ridicule or scorn before the world. That we should be united and we should present Christ as the only Savior and whatever other disputes and whatever other issues we have, those issues should take a distant back seat to the name of Jesus. And this is the real concern that I have with the Christian Heritage Party is that we're taking the gospel of Christ and making it synonymous with political activity. And though Christ does have something to say about our political activity, we need to recognize that Jesus is king. And our politics are subservient to him, but they do not equal him. Make that point very clear in your mind. Now, having said that, I am in no way suggesting that we should not vote for Christians. Indeed, I think we should vote for Christians. I think that a Christian would do a great job leading us. I absolutely think that faith influences government in a positive direction. But I would caution us against binding ourselves to a party that claims the mantle of Christianity and is ultimately a political party. I would caution us against it. I'm not saying don't vote Christian heritage. And one of the reasons I'm saying I'm not saying don't vote Christian heritage is because there's no Christian heritage candidate running in our writing. So you can't vote Christian heritage anyway. So I'm a little bit off the hook there. But I would caution you against it. It is something that we should be very careful of. But additionally, we have, we have to recognize that God uses all manner of individuals to achieve his purposes who are not believers. The Bible seems to indicate that God is always sovereign. The Bible, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The Bible absolutely indicates that God is always sovereign, which means any government authority that is put into place ultimately serves his purposes. But we also know in the Bible that God used a number of kings, a number of kings and leaders to achieve his purposes who were not Christian. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, he raised Joseph to a position of authority over the whole country so he could save much of the world from famine. God used Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to protect and raise up Daniel and his Jewish friends to positions of high authority over Babylon. God used Cyrus, king of Persia, to restore the Jewish exiles to their homeland. God used Darius, king of Persia, again to protect the Jewish people as they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. God used Ahasuerus, king of Persia, to raise up Esther as queen, as queen and to give Mordecai high authority. And in the New Testament age, God used the peace enforced by the secular government of the Roman Empire, the, the famous, the legendary Pax Romana, in order to allow for the spread of the gospel. God has used all kinds of individuals to achieve his purposes. The Bible tells us that we should pray, and it doesn't say just pray for Christians, it says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
So it isn't just Christians in government, but all governing authorities that, who are instituted by God, as Paul says in Romans 13. And we should pray for all of them. And so in conclusion, I would say you shouldn't feel bound to vote for the Christian Heritage Party. I would caution you against voting for any political party that claims the name of Christ and suggests that they are the true mantle bearers for Christ. I would caution you against that. But if you find a worthy candidate in the Christian Heritage Party and they seem to represent your views well, then I would suggest you could vote for them. But if it turns sour and turns sideways and they start to argue over who within the party is the most faithful Christian, I would encourage you to withdraw support immediately. Those are some things that we don't want to get involved in in front of a watching world. Which means we have the freedom to vote for any of the parties. But again, our vote should be restricted to the way that Jesus wants us to vote. And so the question is upon us, how do we prioritize voting issues in any and every election? The moral standards that God reveals in the Bible, church, listen, they're not simply moral standards for one particular church or one particular region of the world, but they are moral standards for which the one true God, the creator and the Lord of the entire universe, will hold every single person accountable at the last judgment. When Peter writes to the Christians living in a hostile, non-Christian culture, he tells them that their non-Christian neighbors are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Then Peter goes on to say, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This fact doesn't change even when people don't believe in the Bible or don't think that it contains God's moral standards. Regardless of what people believe about the Bible, it is true, and it will judge all of us on the last day. And so a Christian worldview affirms that there is only one true God over the whole world and that the moral standards that he has given in the Bible are the only ones by which he will judge every single human being. And we further recognize that those moral standards, if we follow them, will bring his blessing. Which means as we approach our voting decisions, we need to vote in a way that is consistent with God's moral standards. You say, how, how do I know to prioritize these things? I would suggest starting with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as it's also known. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, don't flip there, just listen. I'm not even going to have this all up on the board. The first two commandments deal with the fact that the Lord is God. The third commandment deals with taking his name in vain. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the fifth commandment starts to talk about relationships we have with other people. Fifth commandment, specifically, children to parents. Sixth commandment, murder. Eighth and ninth commandment have to do with property and giving false witness or false testimony, property and perjury. And it goes on and on from there. But what we see in these commandments, commandment number one, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I recognize that I want to worship the Lord according to the dictates of my conscience. And I also recognize that I hold certain views about what that means according to Scripture that others might not share. Now, if someone who were to rise to power with whom I would disagree politically, I would never want them to pass a law that would infringe upon my ability to worship God according to the dictates of my conscience. Which means that as Christians, looking at the Ten Commandments, recognizing the value of their order, 
the very first thing we should prioritize, which we should be passionate about, is religious freedom. The freedom of all people to draw near to God in all places in a manner that they think is consistent with their conscience and whatever faith tradition it is that they hold to. We should be standing up for religious freedom. That should be our number one political issue. And I'm here to tell you, if you haven't been paying attention, religious freedom is absolutely under assault in this country. I'll just mention a few examples. Time is short. It's getting away from this this morning. But I'll draw your attention most notably to the TWU, Trinity Western University versus Law Society of British Columbia, and the ruling that was handed down restricting this university from establishing a law school on the basis of the fact that they were utilizing a community covenant, an agreement amongst their student body that would stipulate a certain moral code. Now, the reasoning that the, uh, that the Law Society of British Columbia came up with for why they would not, they would not accredit this organization, they wouldn't accept lawyers from TWU, was that they found that that community covenant was discriminatory. To which TWU said, yes it is. It absolutely is. We are trying to establish a Christian student body and we do not feel we're infringing on the rights of anybody who is LGBTQ or any other type of sexuality or any other type of religion because there are other law schools even here in the province of British Columbia which they can go to. What TWU was very clear about was that they are a faith community a religious institution of education, and they wanted to educate their students according to their religious beliefs and standards. And of course, if you're all familiar with the TWU ruling, their privilege to do that was struck down. It was determined by the Supreme Court of Canada that it infringed upon the rights of LGBTQ individuals, that it discriminated against them, which nobody denied. But the issue was, do we have the freedom in this country to establish an organization based upon religious convictions, or don't we? To which we have the answer. You can do it so long as it does not conflict with rights that are deemed to be more important than religious freedom. Notice that. As long as what we are doing does not conflict with anyone else's rights, then we can do it. But as soon as we come into conflict with another group that is deemed to be of a higher priority, religious freedom is shelved. That ought to terrify us as a church. Second issue. Ontario doctors forced to provide referrals for patients seeking euthanasia. Violation of the conscience. This is from May 15th, 2019. The case was the Christian Medical and Dental Society versus the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. The Court of Appeal in that particular province concluded that the policies infringe physicians' religious freedom by requiring them to either violate their convictions or abandon their practice area rather than face prosecution for failing to do so. Notice the language. That's a direct quote from the ruling. Direct quote. It violates their religious freedom. The ruling openly acknowledged that. It violates their religious freedom by requiring them to either violate their convictions or abandon their practice area rather than face prosecution for failing to do so. However, the three-judge panel agreed with the divisional court that the infringement was, quote, justifiable 
as it advances the CSPSOs, you're like, what is that? That is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. It was justifiable as it advances the CSPSO's goal of ensuring equitable access to health care. Which means if you're a doctor in Ontario who is a Christian, someone comes to you and says that they are sick, they're terminally ill, and they're tired of living, you are now required to help them find someone who will kill them. Freedom of speech. Again, Ontario. There was a law which took effect February 1st, 2018. It gained royal assent, prohibiting any demonstrations within 100 meters around abortion clinics, specifically if those demonstrations were in protest of those abortion clinics. Freedom of speech. And, and, you know, I don't have any problem with the government wanting to make sure that things are safe and orderly around abortion clinics. I think that is the prerogative of government to make sure that society behaves itself. And I'm not above acknowledging that Christians, brothers and sisters that we would love, have at times gone too far in their protests against abortion. But to suggest that we are no longer allowed to exercise our free speech within anywhere near any kind of proximity to an abortion clinic is an infringement not only on our speech, it's an infringement on our religion, on the expression of our religion. What I found absolutely illuminating in this particular case, all of the individuals who were targeted, all of the different pro-life groups that were targeted by this legislation went to their RCMP the day that this law took effect and specifically asked the RCMP to show them how close they could go to the clinic to make sure they were abiding by the law. Now, just notice that for a second. We're concerned for the safety of people who are trying to obtain an abortion. So we're going to pass a law that restricts these people And what is their response to that law? To willingly, joyfully comply and to ensure that they're obeying the law. Which begs the question, were they ever really a threat to start with? If they're going to honor the 100-meter restriction, then don't you think they're also going to honor any kind of aggression or any kind of threat of violence? They would, of course, not, not do that. But what is most disconcerting was the fine and the jail time associated with this law for anyone who should happen to break it. Six months in jail and a fine of $5,000 for first-time offenders. I'm here to tell you, you better make sure you know how far 100 meters is away from an abortion clinic. I've known people who've murdered people in this country who go to jail for like two to four months. I was like, this is crazy. You can murder people and get out of jail in like no time at all, but if you protest an abortion clinic in Ontario, you're going for six months and you're going to pay a $5,000 fine. And of course, we're all familiar with the summer job grants program of the Trudeau government. 26 religious organizations were prohibited from receiving grant funding for summer youth interns by the Trudeau government during the summer of 2018 and 2019. 26 different religious organizations denied funding. 
all of these organizations were requesting the government to fund, to provide grant money to fund summer interns that would work in programs that had nothing to do whatsoever with abortion or pro-life issues. They simply, as a religious organization, could not affirm abortion. And as a religious organization, they had at times been involved with the issue. And so they could not attest to what the Trudeau government was asking them to attest to. And so even though the money was not to be used in any way advocating for pro-life, the Trudeau government restricted these funds to 26 different religious groups. These groups either held positions that were deemed by the Trudeau government to be unacceptable, or they had alternative programs or ministries that they were engaged in which were found to uh, violate the requirements of the Trudeau government. Now that's an assault on freedom of religion and freedom of speech. In the case of the Ontario Abortion Clinic, that's an assault on freedom of assembly. You look at these first four commandments. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God before me. That's freedom of religion. Second commandment, thir- sorry, third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. There has to be some sort of freedom of speech if we could violate it before the Lord. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They won't let people congregate too close to abortion clinics now. So now we're going to have conversations about these sorts of things here in our church. Which means if we're to worship the Lord and if we're going to honor the Lord with the way we vote, we need to have the freedom of assembly to gather together. We found all of these freedoms attacked and violated. Then we come to the other ones. Honor your father and your mother. The Bible entrusts to families, to parents, the right and the privilege of how to raise up and educate their children. And yet we find an aggressive campaign in the public education system to advocate and to promote sexual values that are inconsistent with what millions of Canadians hold to be true. And it is then further insisted that because these are charter rights, allegedly, that they are freedom, freedoms that are guaranteed by our charter, that parents cannot say no to their children's being receiving this education in a public institution. This is also a violation of our freedom of religion. And then, of course, we've got property. The Eighth and the Ninth Commandment don't steal, and then the Ninth Commandment don't bear false witness. As we work our way down the list, we see a descending priority in terms of these values. But number one should be freedom of religion, which touches on all of the other commandments and all of the other freedoms which follow. We as a society have no problem saying murder is wrong. We have a hard time understanding whom that protection belongs to. And so though I would say to you as a church we must prioritize freedom of religion, there's a special care and a concern that we need to have for the pre-born, the unborn in this country. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, God speaking to the nation of Israel He said, when men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. The Bible says thou shalt not murder. And we here in Canada, we don't have any problems with that. Yes, we agree. We as a society cannot allow people to be murdered. The debate comes in when we say 
preborn children, or as the secularists will insist, preborn fetuses are not people. They are not persons. They are not deserving of the same protections as the rest of the individuals within society. But again, as we look to God's word, God draws no distinction and there is no difference between an adult grown man and a pre-born child. And if two men, the way that this law reads in the Old Testament, if two men are fighting and a pre-born child is injured such that the mom miscarries that child, then the men responsible for that injury are liable to the death penalty. Which means that God's word declares emphatically in the case law of the Old Testament that God places the same value on the life of the unborn, the preborn, as he does on you and me. James chapter 1, verse 27 says that this needs to be a special consideration for us. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's self unstained from the world. A pure religion, a holy walk with the Lord is going to prioritize widows and orphans. Those are the weakest members of our society. The principle, what what do widows and orphans have in common? The fact that society in this century didn't care about these groups of individuals. They were not regarded. They were not looked after. And so what James is saying is this is holy religion. Those individuals who worship God must prioritize looking after the weakest members of society and knowing that God places no difference, there is no distinction between an adult and an unborn, preborn child. Who do you think today in the 21st century is the weakest, most vulnerable individual in our society? The unborn. Something like 100,000 children are murdered in this country annually, every year. Our hands are stained with blood if we do not speak out about these issues. So you say, okay, pastor, how shall we vote? You need to prioritize religious freedom. And you need to prioritize the unborn and the preborn. Okay, good to go. Which candidate is going to do that out of all the political parties? None of them. None of them. Are you sad? Because I am. Are you disappointed? I am. We are forced to choose between the lesser of two evils. As we consider the political parties... Justin Trudeau and the liberals have made it very clear that if you are not emphatically in support of abortion, you are not welcome in the liberal party. He is going to advocate for it. He is going to push for it. Understanding what the scriptures say about our prioritization of the unborn, I in good conscience could not vote for the liberals. This position is shared as well by the NDP. The Greens, if you do the research, give conflicting answers on this issue. To this day, I don't really know how the Greens feel about it, and I can't tell you what to make of their arguments in this particular instance. In one case, the Greens say that they would allow the members of the Green Party to vote their conscience on this issue. 
And in another instance, they say, whatever happens, we as a Green Party will never support restriction to access for women's, as they say, reproductive rights. So which is it? Your members can vote their conscience? Well, what if their conscience leads them to wanting to vote against abortion, to restricting access? Well, in that instance, we won't let them vote their conscience. I don't know what to make of it. I'm not confident. The two parties which have left open the position of abortion are the Conservatives and the People's Party of Canada. Now, that's not to inspire or engender any great hope in you for either of these two parties. Both parties have not made it a significant campaign platform, and I wish that they would, but neither has. If I were to vote, knowing the love that our God has for children, I could not in good conscience vote for any party that advocated for abortion and said that it was a fundamental human right. And as your pastor, I'm here to tell you that as you head to the election polls tomorrow, you should not vote for any party that will advocate the murder of children, which includes the pre-born. This is a good moment for you to say amen. Thank you, Lydia. (laughs) Whatever other politics they may have regarding the economy, regarding environment, regarding whatever, this issue is central to our God. Therefore, it should be central to us. Now, my time is almost gone. You say, how do I vote tomorrow? Look at Exodus chapter 18. Moses is trying to lead the people. He can't do it on his own. His father-in-law comes to him and says, you need some guys to help you out. He says, if you do this, God will bless you. And here's what he says. He says in verse 21, looking for guys that are going to help you. He says, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. Three qualifications there. Number one, able men. That is, they are competent. They actually know how to do the job that they're being asked to do. As we consider our politicians, as we consider the different political parties that we can vote for, we need to evaluate whether or not the individual and the party, it's ludicrous to separate the two, whether this party with this individual is actually capable of doing the job. That is something we have to evaluate. Number two, look for able men who fear God. Look at that, fear God. You say, okay, pastor, who fears God? All of our politicians fear the electorate. They fear man. They don't fear God. Which means if we want our politicians to actually start considering the Lord, we as Christians need to start speaking out about these issues to our politicians that they would understand that there's a criteria that we hold more valuable than money, more valuable than lowering taxes or protecting the environment or any other issue. There's a value that is important to us, namely, we like to worship Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that's not something that's going to carry a lot of weight with the politicians. If you look at any of the studies, any of the statistical research, around 17% of citizens in Canada claim to be Christian. But if you look harder at the data, only around 4% actually attend church. So somewhere around 4% of Canadians take religion seriously and attend church actively. 
If you're a politician and you're trying to get elected to high office, 4% of the electorate is not a significant number. It's not something you can just completely disregard, but it's not something you're going to actively campaign for. But you want to know something else? The LGBTQ population in our country, do you want to know how big that group is? It's about 1%. And you see politicians all over the place falling all over themselves for this group. So, what's the difference between a group of Christians and a group of LGBTQ individuals? One is very vocal. And our sin, our mistake, is that for too long, we have been very silent. Church, you want the politicians to fear God. If you want a politician who cares about your issues, you need to get involved. And last but not least, it says... Look for able men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. And again, I just say good luck to you guys. I, you know, there's all kinds of financial benefits to higher office, and uh, a lot of it is shady. Some of it is outright crooked and corrupt. But as we consider these three, these three qualifications, we need to be looking for trustworthy men. We need to be looking for men who fear God and we need to be looking for men who are capable of doing the job. As you head to the election, bowl, ballot, uh, the election polls tomorrow to cast your ballot, my prayer is that you would not vote for any politician who would conduct his government in such a way as to violate the moral standards of Scripture, which I have just spelled out for you. Number two, you should consider candidates on the basis of their competency, on the basis of their support for religious freedom, and on their integrity. Whatever happens tomorrow or any other election in this country, we already know who the King of Kings is. We already know who the Lord of Lords is. And as we close this morning, I leave you with this scripture verse from Revelation chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for all the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, and I am coming again. Whatever happens tomorrow or any other election in this church, in this country, church. Jesus Christ rules. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, Lord, we entrust these things into your hands, but we also pray that you would guide and give us wisdom as we go to vote tomorrow. Lord, our prayer as a church is that we would vote in accord with your word, that your priorities would guide and direct our priorities in the ballot box tomorrow. God, we pray we pray for the leaders of our country. We pray that as they govern, that your spirit would testify loudly in their hearts where our feeble voices are rarely heard and that they would know that there is a God in heaven who will bless our nation if they would enact policies and laws that are in fear of him, in fear of you, O oh God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.